Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, and we thank you that we don't have to guess what you're thinking. Lord, that you're not a faraway, distant God, that we have to crawl over glass to find your approval. But Lord, that you reached down from heaven through your Son. You died, he died in our place so we might have eternal life. You've given us the word that we might know you, that we might have intimate fellowship with you. And we ask right now as we go to your word that you indeed would be our teacher. Lord, minister to every heart that is here. Father, we pray that no one would leave here without knowing you. Lord, maybe somebody came for the play this morning and I pray they would just realize that this has been a divine appointment, that you brought them here for much more than a play. But Father, you brought them here to come to know you. Father, I thank you and praise you. And again, be with our children. Lord, may your hand be upon them. Draw them unto yourself. May they grow up to love and serve and honor you all the days of their lives. We dedicate them to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We looked at, the, at Hebrews chapter 11, God's Hall of Faith or God's Hall of Fame. And again, where we see those who God points out as having significant faith. Those who God used in a mighty and a powerful way. And as we got to the end of the chapter, we kind of, we ran out of time, so we kind of stopped with a few verses left. So I'm going to go back and review a few verses before it, and then we'll look at the first few verses of the next chapter as well. But to bring you up to date, because I know we do have some visitors here, the, the book of Hebrews was just that. It was a book written to the Hebrew Christians in the first century church. They had gone from Judaism and they had given their lives to Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament and Old Covenant prophecies were fulfilled in Him. All the Old Covenant sacrifices and everything they did were all fulfilled in Christ. And now there was no more need for the temple. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn and they could enter into His presence anywhere and any time. And so we come to this chapter or to this book, actually, and it's being written to those who have been walking with God for a time, but now because of persecution, they're considering leaving Jesus Christ and the the gospel of grace to go back to the temple that is now of no value because it was simply a foreshadowing of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ. Guys, for us today, we may not be tempted to go to a temple But we may be tempted to go back to old religion or an old way of life. But guys, we need to give our lives to Jesus Christ. He alone is our Savior. He alone is God. He alone paid the price. And He is the only path to salvation. So we see that in this exhortation through the first ten chapters, He's letting them know that Jesus indeed is better because there was those who thought, well, you don't even have a, a high priest. And we saw Jesus is a great high priest. Then He said, well, you don't have... You know, you don't have a temple. You meet in homes. They said, well, you know what? We now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Well, you don't have, you know, the sacrificial system anymore. They said, well, you know, we have the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world over and over and over. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. That is the entire focus of this book. But it's also got an underlying focus that we're going to look at this morning, and that is to endure in the midst of persecution. He's telling them all of this because there's a temptation, because difficulty has come to run away from the gospel of grace and to turn back to the old way. And again, you may be here, as I said before, and maybe there's contemplation that, you know, I've been walking with God for a while, or I've been coming to church for a while, I've never really given my life to Him, but you know what? My life hasn't gotten easier. Things are still a little bit tough. I still go through trials and difficulties of life. Well, that's exactly where these first century Jewish Christians were. So in chapter 11, I'll just go quickly through what we have seen in this chapter so far. He began off by talking to them about the description of what it really means to have faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Then after describing faith, he gave them examples of faith. In Abel, we saw faith worshiping. He offered a more excellent sacrifice. In Enoch, we saw faith walking. Enoch didn't have a Bible. Enoch didn't have a church to attend. Enoch didn't have a high priest. Enoch had intimate fellowship with God. And he walked with him for 300 years. This is an exhortation to these who've been walking with him for a few years and are being tempted to go back to the old way of life. We then saw Noah faith working. Noah was told to build an ark, and for 120 years, he built a boat when it had never rained before. Again, 
We see faith in action. True belief will impact behavior. And faith works. It worships, it walks, and it indeed works. We then saw faith waiting. One of the main examples there was Abraham, who was told he was going to have a child, and yet he was 99 years old. His wife, who was 90, Sarah, was told this, and she laughed. She said, how in the world can that even be? You know, we get to see and trust that God's timing is perfect. We have faith in the Lord. We pray in our time. He answers in His time. His time is perfect. Amen? And He's showing them that while they're maybe, well, things aren't happening as quick as we thought. You know, the whole city hasn't gotten saved yet. Instead of people getting saved, we're facing persecution. He's encouraging them that real faith waits. Then we saw faith warring. And faith warring, if you'll recall, that there were those, because of their faith, had to make stands for God. And they had to make stands for God sometimes, often, when they were the only ones who were standing. So sad to see sometimes how the world we're living in today and the country we live in right now is getting further and further away from God. Amen? You know, the Bible says in the last days, they will call good evil and evil good, and we're living in that time. The Lord is being mocked, even in a country that was founded on Christianity. I'm so tired of Merry Xmas and Happy Holidays and everything else. It's Jesus Christ's birthday, amen? And you know what? We need not be ashamed to talk about the fact that he is indeed the reason for the season. But there was faith warring, and you saw those like David and and Daniel, who had to make a stand for God when nobody else would, when everybody else was bowing, when everybody else was serving a false God. And God would send them out to make a stand for Him. And guys, there's a time when you and I will have to stand for Him when nobody else is standing with us. But remember, you plus God is a majority. So we see faith worshiping, faith walking, faith working, faith waiting, faith warring. And then we saw faith winning. You know what? That God is faithful when we stand for Him. And now, Understand, we saw that there were those who went out into battle and won mighty victories. We saw the example of, of Joshua in the battle of Jericho, where he simply, God told him, march around the city, and he marched around the city and the walls came down. Again, as we are faithful to God, he will do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so we saw several examples of faith winning. Now finally, at the end, we saw a faith that is willing to die. Because guys, when we stand for God, sometimes there will be a great victory here on earth, but other times it will result in a victory through even our own death. Guys, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And those who really love God will have an eternal perspective. Our faith will grow to the point that we become like Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Lord, I trust you no matter what. Not just when things are perfect, but Lord, when things are difficult. Now remember, I'm sharing all this with you, but remember that this was being written to the first century Jews who were considering walking away from God. And he's giving them all these examples of these Old Testament heroes who stood for God even when it wasn't popular. Those who had gone through much greater trials than they were going through, and yet they remained faithful. Guys, none of us have endured the things we saw in Hebrews chapter 11, or very few of us anyway. We saw there some of the things that they were, you know, being stoned. I don't know if anybody in the United States has ever been stoned for their faith, or being sawn in two, or living destitute lives, or afflicted, or tormented. But you know what I love is when you get to verse 38, Look how God feels about those who lay down their lives for Him. You know, Jesus laid down His life for us. And the Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, that He laid down His life for a friend. And you know what? True faith is not seen just in showing up on Sunday morning or having a Christian sticker on your car, but truly living a life laid down, sacrificed unto Him. He's worthy to be worshipped, to be praised. And if we give Him our lives completely, He will use it for His glory. And then it says, this is what God says about those who are willing to die for Him, who are willing to live for Him. Let me say this too. Sometimes it's harder to live for Him than it would be to die for Him. Sometimes, you know, we say, well, I would die for the Lord, but yet we won't stand up at work and proclaim the gospel to our coworkers. Well, yeah, I would die for him. Well, I would lay down my life for you, Lord. I'd go into battle for you. Lord, I would do anything for you. Oh, share my faith with my neighbor. Oh, I can't do that. And you know what? Sometimes it is harder 
to, to live for him than it would be even to die for him. And so this is what the Bible says about those who were indeed willing to die for him. It says, of whom the world was not worthy. How incredible when God would say that the world was not worthy. You know, could it be that they were being used so mightily by God, he allowed them to go through this you know, persecution unto death because they were not worthy to remain here and he wanted them in his presence. Guys, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As Christians, we die well. Amen? I just got an email about a young man who was in my youth group in Southern California and I just got an email uh, last night and I don't know how, but he went to be with the Lord. And he couldn't be more, he's probably 30 years old or so. And you know, I, I'll find out later the details, but I have to tell you, I got the news, and all I could think was, praise God. Praise God. You know, we die right on time. And you know, Isaiah, according to tradition, was sawn in two, but even at that, it was right on time, according to God's perfect plan, and we must never question the Lord. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's trusting God even when we don't understand. And guys, we need to get to that place where our faith goes beyond to belief in our head, but it's shown in actions in our everyday lives. And the Lord says, of those who stand for him, of whom the world was not worthy. So we're going to pick up in verse uh, 39. And I titled the message, if you're a note taker, Running the Race of faith, because now we've seen all these examples of all these, you know, hall of, in the hall of faith, God's hall of fame, these heroes of the faith, however you want to put it, those who've been used mightily by God, those whose names God chose to write down in the book, and then we get to the last few verses, and now he's going to exhort us on how we are to respond. Guys, this is not just us reading a book about people in a long ago and far away. This book is supposed to impact the way that we live, Amen. Otherwise, reading it is a waste of time. When we read it, it should build up our faith that we might follow the patterns we see in the Word of God. So running the race of faith, the first thing we're going to see is our response to the example of the Old Testament heroes of faith. God, God's provided something better for us, and there are expectations that come with it. Then we will see running the race of faith, and I've made five points here. Running the race of faith in the midst of difficulty. Some sources of encouragement, some exhortations on how we are to do that. You might say, okay, we've got this responsibility. How do we respond? How, how are we to live now? Now that I know and understand I'm to live by faith, how is that lived out practically? Well, here are the points we'll see in the first three verses. Number one, the encouragement of those who've gone before, before us. The examples we can look back to and see the faithfulness of God and the hand of God and how we can take somebody who doesn't even know they're being used so mightily by him. Do you think Noah knew that we'd be talking about him 5,000 years later? Absolutely not. Do you think that any of them thought, oh, you know, I'm going to be in the Bible one day? Probably been there several times the way I'm living for the Lord. No, they didn't think that at all. You know what? They were simply being faithful to what God had placed right in front of them, not knowing what the outcome would be, but only that God was faithful and he would do things according to his perfect will, and they trusted him. That's faith. Faith is not conditional on, okay, God, I'll serve you if you give me. Faith is, Lord, I'll serve you no matter what. You know what? Lord, I'll serve you because of what you've already given me. Amen? He's already given us enough. He's given us more than we can even begin to thank him for so the first thing we'll see in running the race in the midst of difficulty is we have an encouragement by looking at those who've gone before the next thing we'll see is the exhortation to lay aside every weight those things that weigh us down in our faith then the exhortation to lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us then to run with endurance and then finally to look unto jesus so let's begin in verse 39 looking at our response to the example of the Old Testament heroes of faith, God having provided something better for us. Look what it says there in verse 39. Speaking now of, of all these, in Hebrews 11, that he's spoken of, it says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Now, what is he talking about? He's saying, you know what? 
Sawn in two, had not received the promise. Built an ark when it had never rained, having not received the promise. Made, you know, worshipped God, stood for him when nobody else would, having not received the promise. Faced lions in a den, were cast into a, a fiery furnace, having not received the promise. They had this incredible faith, and yet they'd only had a glimpse of what was to come. The promise he's speaking of is Jesus Christ. They were looking forward to a Messiah who would come one day, but he had not come yet. You know, the Bible talks about you know, us looking through a glass dimly, just getting a, a, a shadow, you know, the backside of his glory, a glimpse of who he is. And you know what? They had nothing but a glimpse. They, they knew he was coming. They knew the promise of his coming. They knew all the sacrifices were pointing to one who would come. But with just that glimpse, look at the incredible faith they displayed. How much more faith should you and I have that do not have a glimpse, but the entire fulfilled prophecy right before our eyes? Amen? That was really weak. Guys, they knew a Messiah was coming for you and I, the Messiah has come. They knew... They knew that, yes, God was going to do a great work. And you know what? There was something greater. But you know, they had no idea how far away it was. But they trusted God. And they trusted God with only a glimpse. And the exhortation, look at verse 40, is God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They had a small revelation and they were used mightily by God. How much more faithful should we be having received a better, something better? Now, the word there, it says, and they shall not be made perfect apart from us. The word there really means complete. So the work that they've done, they, you know, Hebrews 11 in a sense is still being written. Here's a list of God's hall of faith. Here's a list of those who faithfully serve God, who stood for God when nobody else would. And then it says at the end in the last verse, having something better for us that they should not be made complete apart from us. You know what this means? That list is still being written. Now don't get me wrong, we don't add to the word of God, amen? But what I'm talking about is that God's hall of faith is still being added to, I believe, every single day. Because you know what? God's work was not done. These were used mightily by God, but there was more that he was going to do. He was going to continue to raise up faithful men and women. And guys, let me say this. Just as in the days of Noah, we, mean, we need faithful men and women to stand up for God today. Amen? Did the kids put you guys to sleep or what happened? Just wondering. God has called us to live lives of great faith. Faith not only to win, but to war or even to die if necessary. And again, God is calling us. He's given us something better. He's given us something more. Guys, I believe that we will be the most accountable. Think about this. They did not have the Bible. They did not have, only a few did, the uh, you know, most did not have the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit was given, it was given for a specific task for a specific amount of time. They did not have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. They, they, they may have had, uh, depending on when they came along, maybe they had the first five books of the Bible. Maybe some of them had some of the prophet's writings, but certainly some of them came along and didn't have any of the Word of God. They did not have the Holy Spirit. Jesus had not come yet. They had just a glimpse of what was coming. But you and I, we have so much more. Living today, guys, most of you have many Bibles in your home. You have to de decide which translation you want to use and which color you want to bring today, right? They didn't have a Bible. We have the Word of God. It's only been in the last few hundred years. You know, with the invention of the printing press, the ability that we have. Even later, they would have the Word of God and it would be on a scroll and only a few would have access to it. And you'd have to go to a special place and they would open it up and they'd be able to read small portions of it. You and I can open up the Bible anywhere and anytime and spend time in the presence of Almighty God. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us who illuminates the text. The veil has been torn and we can enter into the most holy place that had been reserved for one man once a year 
for but a moment, and now you and I can enter in anywhere and any time. Guys, there's something better He has for us. As great as He used them, as mightily as He used them, He wants to use us in even a more mighty way. Pastor David, you telling me God wants to use me in an even more mighty way than He used Abraham? Yes, I am. Because that's what this verse says. He has something better for us. Now, not only for us as a people living on this planet today, but think about us in the United States. So there are, there are those that we, you know, we have the fulfilled revelation. We have the completed revelation. We have the fulfilled prophecy. You know, as recent as 1948 with, the, with Israel becoming a nation again, seeing all these prophecies being fulfilled over and over. The Word of God talking about two men dying in Israel and the whole world seeing it. And for thou, you know, they mocked that. How is that possible? Well, we have television today. It's very simple. But we see the fulfillment of prophecy over and over. God has something better for us. But again, we're more accountable. Because there are people on this planet still who do not have the access to the Word of God that you and I have. There are people in different countries all over the world that are fortunate if they have one Bible for an entire church. They don't have a Christian radio station. They don't have commentaries. They don't have Bible software. They don't have all the things that we have. And yet, I'm sharing with you from my heart that I am concerned that we have become so lukewarm in the midst of having so much blessing from Almighty God. God has given us everything we could possibly have, and yet we're too bored. We move on. We're focused on everything else but Him. The Bible says that seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto Him. Guys, we got so much to turn to, so much freedom to worship. Christian radio, Christian TV, Christian movies, gospel tracts, commentaries, Bible software, Christian t-shirts, bumper stickers, churches on every corner, more than probably any other place on this planet, and yet we as a church in the United States are asleep. Now, I know I may not be speaking to you as an individual. I'm talking about us as a church. But guys, that means we need to be praying more. Amen? That means we need to be more outspoken about our faith. We need to pray God start a revival and start in my heart first. God has something better for us. God has given us everything we could possibly need. Guys, it's not that we need more. It's that we need to be faithful with what we have. Amen? with what He's already given us. And God is, you know what guys, our life is but a vapor. And we need to have the kind of faith that I see, and you know, I know we got some people here from India. You know what, I see greater faith in places in India where I've been in tribes, in tribal places in India where nobody knew how to read. And yet they had greater faith than I've ever seen in, in the United States. They had faith to pray for people to be raised from the dead and people were raised from the dead. They had faith to be persecuted and continue to walk with God. And yet, here we are concerned with how we stand before the world. Now again, I'm sharing this with you. I know many of you are walking with God. You're on fire for God. You're passionate for God. You're already sharing your faith at work. You're doing those things. Be encouraged to continue. There's an exhortation to myself as well. As I was studying this throughout the week, God was just piercing my heart for Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz needs Jesus, Amen. And God has put us here to be salt and light of this place. And we have, we don't need more to reach this county. We need to be faithful with what God has already given us. It says at the end of that verse, God having provided something better for us, that they, they should not be made perfect apart from us. God's work will not be complete until He comes back. And God's looking. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one who will show himself strong on account of him. And again, I'm driving, down a, I'm driving down a dirt road. I'm talking to my driver, and I'm talking to him about his faith in the Lord. And they have a different grasp and understanding of what it means to be a Christian than we do. In a land that is largely Hindu and Muslim, in many parts of the country, there are parts of the country they can worship freely, but many parts of the country, they face great persecution. You see it happening also in China. And I'm talking to these guys, and they've experienced persecution that you and I never have. I'm talking to one man, and because he showed the Jesus film, out in the field, they took him and his wife and his two children, and they took him out onto an island and put him in prison and told him every day, we're going to kill you tomorrow. We're going to kill you tomorrow. They told him every day for three years, we're going to kill you tomorrow. 
And they would bring his children by. They had him in a separate, in a separate cell and said, we're going to take your son out and kill him right now. Unless you renounce your faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to take your five-year-old son and kill him right now. You know what? You want to talk about your faith being put to the test. And he never would relent. He said, you know what? The worst thing I could do for my son is deny Jesus Christ in front of him. And I won't do it. And you know what? If they take my son, up, be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. And after three years, finally one day, they took him out to a field. They thought they blindfolded him. He thought he was going to be shot. And they left them there. And then a plane came and picked him up and flew them away. And they were told if they ever went back there, that they would be put to death. And you know what? He went back there and started sharing the gospel again. You know what? And we live here and we're like, hey man, you know, if I say something about Jesus to my neighbor, he might like not like me anymore. He might be mad at me. I, you know, if I don't, you know, and you know, God, and I'm sharing this with you from my own heart because God's, God's convicting me too. Guys, we need to make a stand for the Lord. I'll never forget another young brother coming up to me and I noticed that he had some wounds under his shirt and, uh, I asked him what had happened, and he said, oh, uh, well, you know, you're a pastor. You know what it's like. Uh, you know, they got me on the ground and beat me again. And, I'm, uh, and he goes, well, you know what it's like. You're a pastor. Uh, uh, I don't know what that's like at all. I've had people get up and leave during a message, but I've never had anybody beat me. <laughs> now, that's not happened one time. But see, there's an expectation that standing for God means persecution may come, and yet they stand for God anyway. You know, maybe as a country, we need a little more persecution, so we'll stand for God. Lord, whatever you have to do to make your light shine brightly, let's do that. Amen? So now that brings us, that brings us to chapter 12. We're just going to look at the first few verses. But it says, he has something better for us, made perfect apart from us. Okay, now we are to respond. Here's the hall of faith. Here's how they're walking. Here's how they're living. And now it's up to you. Here's your response. And he begins by encouraging them. Now remember who he's talking to. People who are contemplating leaving the gospel of grace to go back to Judaism. Why? Because they're being persecuted and they don't want to be persecuted anymore. I didn't sign up to be persecuted. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I like the gospel of grace, but I didn't want any difficulty to come with that. Now difficulty has come and you know what? Maybe I'm just going to check out and go back. That's who he's writing to. And then notice what he says. The first thing he tells them in running the race of faith in the midst of difficulty is he reminds them of the encouragement of those who have gone before. Look at verse 1. Therefore, whenever you see therefore, you ask what it's there for. And what he's saying is, in light of everything I've just said, here's how you're to respond. In light of everything you've just read in chapter 11, this is the response of a Christian. This is how we ought to respond to seeing the mighty hand of God. The word therefore literally means consequently or truly then. The writer is telling these early Jewish Christians, okay, I've told you about them, it's your turn now. Guys, we've been reading the word of God, we've studied the word of God, it's our turn now. Amen? It's our turn to take it outside of this building and start living it before the world. In light of all he had said in the previous chapter, and he says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now he's referring back to Hebrews chapter 11, and he's talking about this cloud of witnesses, all these who had made a a stand for God in the face of great difficulty. Greater difficulty than they were presently facing, they had stood for God. The writer exhorts them to remember those who had faithfully finished the race of faith before they had even come along, and they had done it in the midst of difficulty. Now, it says, so great a cloud of witnesses... Now the context, this is a clear reference, like I said, to those who had come before them. And it says that they were surrounded. That word means to lie around, to enclose, to encircle, to hang about. So while these early Christians were indeed enduring persecution to the point of considering bailing out, the word of God was filled with examples of those who had remained faithful to the end. And it should serve as a source of encouragement for those who are still running the race of faith. Notice again, these members of the hall of faith. 
could not have known the impact their faithfulness would have on coming generations. So too, you have no idea the impact that your faithfulness is going to have on coming generations. Guys, we need to be faithful and leave the fruit up to God. Being faithful, be obedient. We have no idea how it's going to impact those who follow us. Now it says, a cloud of witnesses. Now this has caused confusion by people because they read it in English and they take the the meaning and they think that that means that Moses and Abraham and David and Samuel and Barak and Jephthah and all those who are mentioned are actually sitting up in clouds watching us. I've heard pastors absolutely interpret it that way. So great a cloud of witnesses. This means they're all sitting up in heaven watching us. Well, I beg to differ. I absolutely do not believe that's happening. Let me tell you why. i got several reasons. Number one, heaven is a place of joy and peace. Amen? If they were watching the earth, there'd be no joy. Amen or not? First of all, and if Jesus is there, where are you looking? Your eye, you're going to be focused only on him, seeking after him. I mean, it does sound kind of cool to have, think that Moses might be cheering for you when you're sharing your faith. Sounds pretty cool, right? David's up there playing a harp. Go, go, yeah, share your faith. No, that's, that's not happening. That's not what's happening. But let me tell you this. If you look up the original in the, in the Greek, here's what these words mean. The word cloud means a dense multitude or a throng. It speaks not of a witness's location, but his number. So there's a cloud of witnesses. There's a great number of them. You can look back and see this huge number of those who've made a stand for God. And they should be an encouragement to you as they have stood in the midst of persecution that you can stand too. The word witnesses does not mean spectators. It's actually where we get our word martyr. There's so great a cloud or throng or multitude of martyrs that you can look back at that it should be an encouragement to you to stand faithfully for God today. That's the context. That's what it means. It was being written to those in the midst of persecution. It wasn't telling them, hey, Moses is watching. You better shape up. Sounds more like Santa Claus. And, you know, that's not Moses. What he's telling them was, you know what? You can look back and see the faithfulness of men and women and how God used them in a mighty way as they were not witnesses as in watching, but they were witnesses and as, as in making a stand for God. And they were martyred for their faith. It's not a cheering section in the clouds, but there are a multitude of witnesses to God's faithfulness, bearing witness that God can see us through, witnesses to us of faith and endurance. As they were contemplating going back, they could look at all these examples and say, you know what, God stood by Noah. God stood by Abel. God stood by David. God stood by Samuel. And God will stand by me. Amen? And that's the word here. That's the exhortation. It's not, again, Hey, people are watching, so be at your best. Guys, I'm not worried about Moses watching. Almighty God is watching. The Holy Spirit living inside of us. I'm not worried about what Moses has to say. Again, we got to be careful, because if we're not, we'll end up worshiping the saints instead of seeing them as those that God used in spite of their sinfulness. Amen? And that's the same thing that can be the encouragement for us. This is an exhortation on how to keep moving forward in the midst of difficulty and persecution, to keep running the race of faith. Number one, by being encouraged by the testimonies of those who have gone before. May we be encouraged by the testimonies not only that we read in Scripture, but that we read today. Hey, by the way, if you've ever seen the book Jesus Freaks, anybody ever seen that book before? Or Fox's Book of Martyrs? Jesus Freaks is literally a book from going back 2,000 years to 20 years ago, of people who have been martyred for their faith. And I'll tell you what, and they're each about a page and a half long. Great exhortation to end your devotion with in the morning. A great exhortation to get our eyes off of our trivial trials in life and to get them focused back on the creator of the universe and living a life sold out for him. Let me encourage you. It might be a good Christmas present. Then it says, number two, not only be encouraged by the testimonies of those who've gone before, but then it says, by laying aside every weight. Look what it says. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says this, 
Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, while an athlete may train with weights, he will never carry the weights out onto the athletic field. Why? Because weights slow them down. I'm amazed. I had some friends in college, and I think it's, I'm sure it's a lot worse now. They were sprinters, and I would pick up their shoes, and you almost, they almost didn't feel like you were carrying anything in your hand. They've made their shoes so light, they're trying to cut down every ounce. Their uniforms, they, you know, they try to get, away, get rid of any draft. Why? So that they can run full speed and not be slowed down one ounce. Can you imagine if a guy showed up at the Olympics after training for four years, and he ran out there to run, and he had a 50-pound dumbbell in each hand? Okay, I'm ready. You know what? You're going to get lapped, Right? That he's done. Why? Because he could be the fastest runner in the world, but if he's trying to carry those weights with him in the race, he's going to be of no value, and he's going to get nowhere quick. Guys, the example here is this. As we're running the race for God, there are those kinds of weights that can slow us down and even render us completely ineffective for the kingdom of God. And I want you to notice that it's interesting that the weights, it's not against the rules for a runner to carry weights out there, but they never do because they know if they do, they'll lose. So it's not against the rules. And I believe there's a picture of the liberties that we have in Christ that are not necessarily sin. There are things that, you know, we can miss out on what is best, pursuing that which is good. And sometimes we're so focused on pursuing things other than the kingdom of God. Again, not necessarily something that's wrong or bad, but we pursue it so much that we become ineffective in our testimony. Maybe we're working 80 hours a week at our job, and we have no time for devotions, and no time to lead our family in prayer and in Bible study, and no time to get involved in any kind of ministry, but I'm doing this for my family. You know, I'm doing it faithfully. Guys, we're not to be making our career above our relationship with God. We're not to be making any of these things that can get our eyes off of Him, that can slow us down, that can render us ineffective. He says there, let us lay aside every weight. Let put those things off. We need to be running lean and mean for the Lord. Amen? You know, for the Apostle Paul, he had a test for himself. And his test was basically this. It says in 1 Corinthians, all things are lawful, but they're not all profitable. You know what he says? It's not wrong against the law. It's not against the law of God for me to do this, but that doesn't mean I should do it. It may not be unlawful, but it doesn't mean it's profitable. And so the Apostle Paul had a, you know, a way of looking at things that I think we all could learn from. His whole heart was this. Does it edify and strengthen my walk with God? If it does, I'll be involved in it. If it doesn't, I won't. That was his heart. Now again, what I'm supposed to go work. Yes, you are. And when you're at work, remember, you're in your mission field. Amen? When you go to work, you go to be a witness. We don't go witnessing. We are witnesses. And wherever we go, God's called us to be there. But guys, our number one priority at work should be to be salt and light. Now, that means we do our job as unto the Lord. That's part of it. We should be the best workers in the building, but people ought to see Jesus in us. But guys, if we get to the point to where we're so focused on our career or our possessions or our hobbies or even a relationship that it hinders our walk with God, it's time for us to lay it aside. Maybe there's a form of entertainment that's occupying all your time. Maybe it's time to throw out the Xbox. Maybe it's time to put some of those things away. Now, Pastor David, start, sounds like you're getting legalistic. No. What I'm saying is, guys, if we want to live our lives sold out for God, we need to set aside those things that will get our eyes off of God. Amen? And again, we can miss out on what is best, pursuing that which is good. I heard a young man came to his track coach and he said, can I smoke and run? He said, you can smoke and run, but you can't smoke and win. And you know, that's a great example. Guys, we can be Christians, we can love God, and we can be all about the things of this world and so consumed with them that we have no time to impact eternity. No time to use the gifts God's given us for His glory, to step up. You know, pray about starting a Bible study at work. Well, I don't really know the Bible that well. Well, start reading it. You just got to be one week ahead of everyone else. 
Amen? Now, now I know the secret of being a pastor. You just got to be a week ahead. Read the, read the text. Spend time in the Word. You know, steal people's notes. It's okay. But just, can I encourage you? Pray about starting a Bible study at work. Pray about starting a Bible study in your neighborhood. Pray about getting more involved in using practical gifts to go to your next door neighbor and minister to them that they might see Jesus in you. May we not be so busy about the things of this world that we have no time for the things of God. We need to lay those weights aside that are weighing us down in our pursuit of serving God with our whole heart. So the weights, those are the liberties, those are the things, again, that can be okay, done in moderation, but when they become the priority of life, they need to be put aside. We're running the race with faith. The third thing we see is not only lay aside the weights that can you know, weigh us down, but also the sin which easily ensnares us. Let me say one last thing about the weights, because this is from my own life. It was a mistake that I know that I made. I miss God, and it took me years before things got right. Early on, I bought a house, and I paid a lot of money for it, and my mortgage was really high, and you know what? It kept me from doing full-time ministry because I couldn't possibly do ministry and work enough hours to make my house payment, and I used to call it the golden handcuffs. Now, I'm not saying we can't have a house payment. Houses are a good investment. We need to be good stewards of God's money. As long as you understand it's God's house, it's a great investment, a good thing to do. But guys, may we not try to buy the biggest house we possibly can so that we can have the biggest payment, so hopefully we make the most money one day, and then it renders us ineffective to have any time to serve God. The Bible says, tells us very clearly that you know, he told the apostles, don't even take a money bag with you. You know, have very little holding on to you from the things of this world. And again, I own, a, I own a home. I'm not bagging on owning a home. I'm just saying, if we have possessed possessions, may they not possess us. Amen? Let's lighten ourselves of the weights so that if God calls us to go be a missionary tomorrow, we can go. Amen? We can say, yes, Lord. Not, no, Lord, I really would like to, but I got this big pile of dirt here that I got to hold on to. I got this pile. Of, I'm going to be shoveling it for at least five more years before I get it down to a manageable you know, space. Call me back in five years. Lord, let me live in a way that the pile of dirt is so small I can leave whenever I need to. Amen? Well, then he says, not only the weights, but the sin that ensnares us. Look what it says. And the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now, what is sin? It's those things clearly outlined in the Word of God, or for you and I today, that the Holy Spirit convicts us of, that are a source of separation from God. Then it says of this sin, it easily ensnares us. In the Greek, it's sin which easily stands around us. It, Martin Luther says this, it's ever clinging to us. It's always surrounding us. You know, so much for one's real relationship with God and our level of spiritual maturity can be seen in how we respond to sin. Guys, we're being tempted, bombarded. It's a spiritual battle we live in every single day. Is that true or not? Every day, the enemy's coming. He knows your weak point. He's not all-knowing, but he knows you well enough. He knows humanity well enough. He knows your weak point, and he's going to keep bringing those things that will trip you up, that will stumble you, that will make you ineffective in running the race for the Lord and serving him with your whole heart. He's right there. And you know what? That sin that, is, that's, that so easily ensnares us, he says, lay that aside. Put it out of your midst. How does a spiritually mature child of God, a, a man or woman of faith, look at sin? When we look at the Word of God, we don't look for a loophole to live our life. I hear this all the time, I have to tell you. People will say things like, well, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, and culture was different, and blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm tired of it. Truthfully. But, you know, but, you know Pastor Dave, but there's my circumstances, and, and we're trying to find a loophole to live a sinful life. You know, when someone is spiritually mature and wants to lay aside sin, they examine the Word of God, they put it up against their own lives, and if they see anything in their life that the Word of God would say is sin, they say, Lord, help me to get it out of my life, not find a loophole for me to continue in it. Amen? He's saying to those who want to run a race of faith, who want to have a life that impacts eternity, you need to take those, that sinful behavior and remove it. Set it aside. Put it away from you. If we're running to win, if the Bible says no, that's enough. We remove it from our lives. We're not trying to carry as much weight as possible or be as entangled in as much sin as we can and still go to heaven. Well, how much can I sin and still go to heaven? 
How far to the edge of the cliff can I go without falling off, Lord? Just show me where it is. Tie a rope around me and let me get as far out there as I possibly can. Should that be our faith, you guys? Our faith should not be, how far away, Lord, can I get from you and still be your son? But Lord, how close can I be to you while I'm walking on this earth? Amen? How, how, how intimate fellowship can I have with you? How close can I walk with you? Well, I want to hear your still small voice. I want to have Abba Father relationship with you. We need to be running to win. And if it's sin, we need to say, I'm just not going to get involved in it. Now, do we sin every day? What's the answer? How many of you sinned yesterday? Okay, there it is. Oh, man. You know what, guys? Praise God for His grace. Amen? But the sign of spiritual maturity is not that we're sinless, but we do sin less, and when we sin, we're grieved. Amen? That's when you know you're walking with God, because when you do sin, it breaks your heart. It grips you. It grieves you. And we say, Lord, get, I want that away from me. I'm not trying to find a reason to hold on to it. Lord, I want it removed from my life. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by such great examples behind us, let us lay aside every weight, those things that would slow us down, and those very sins that would easily ensnare us, that would trip us up, that would cause us to be ineffective for the kingdom of God. And then it says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Point number four is run with endurance. The word endurance there is hupomone, which just means to put one foot in front of the other until I finish. I'm just going to keep going, Lord, until I finish. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to slow down. I'm not going to give up. And I'm not going to stop because I'm distracted or the weights are you know, pulling me down or I'm getting entangled with the things of this world. Lord, I'm going to keep my eyes on you and I'm going to keep pursuing you. I'm going to run the race until it's done. Guys, the Christian race is not a competitive sprint to see who comes in first, but it's an endurance run to see who finishes faithfully. God's not looking for how fast you run out of the blocks. He wants to see you just continue to be faithful and pursue Him to the finish line. The race that is set, let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. The word race there in the Greek is where we get the word agony. The word is used for conflict or struggle. God has set before us a race. And we must run it. And it will involve effort and commitment. And just being a passive person, you'll never run the race. God wants us to run the race, to finish it right. Paul pictures himself as a runner in Acts 20, 24. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Paul's telling them that nothing would slow him down from running the race. And this is what he says after giving a list of all the trials he had been through. He says, But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He was not going to allow circumstances or persecution or trials or sickness or imprisonment or anything else to keep him from having eternal focus and serving God full speed. You know what? Santa Cruz needs people like that. Amen? People will say, Lord, I don't want to give you two hours a week. I want to give you every moment of my day. Lord, every breath, it's all yours. I want to serve you with all of it. The first century Jewish Christians were contemplating dropping out of the race altogether. You know, the the hurdles are too high. The turns are wearing me down. You know, it would just be easier so much to, just let me just quit. Guys, the Christian faith is not something we quit. We keep pressing on. And guys, I want you to make it clear. We're going to see in the next verse. We don't press on. We allow him to press on through us. Amen? Look at it says. Then that, the, the last point we want to look to. Not only do we have the encouragement of those who've gone before. Not only do we lay aside those weights, those things that can be good, but can you know, hold us back from pursuing God. We lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. We run with endurance. And then lastly, we look unto Jesus. Look what it says. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Guys, as we're running the race, we need to keep our eyes focused on Him. He's going to be the one that strengthens us to keep going forward. If our eyes are on Him, if our eyes are on the prize, the finish line, we're going to be in heaven one day. We're going to see Him face to face, and nothing else is going to matter. 
Lord, help us to keep our eyes on the prize. I love the New American Standard, what it says in this verse. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. We can only run the race as we look to Him, as we have our eyes locked on Him, as He is our focus, our inspiration, and our example. And in the ancient Greek, the word looking unto Jesus implies a definite looking away from other things and looking only unto Him. So we're looking to Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but I can only look one place at a time pretty much. And I really can't be looking nine places at a time. I just can't. And if I do, my eyes cross and they hurt and I don't like it. So you know what? If we're looking unto Jesus, we won't be looking at the temptations that are around us. Amen? If we're focused on Him, if we're passionate about Him, if we're looking only unto Him, He will become the focus and passion of our lives. Guys, while the Old Testament saints are examples, good examples, they're imperfect nonetheless, Jesus is the example. Amen? If you want to look for someone's life to pattern after, praise God for people like David and Moses. And but you know what? Virtually all of them have recorded sin and they blew it and they needed God's grace. If we want to look at the ultimate example, the example is Jesus Christ. And then it says, He is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the author. He is the originator of your faith. Amen? Now the world today says you conjure up faith. No, you don't. He is the author. He is the originator. Guys, basically the, what I wrote down is he paid the entrance fee to get us into the race. Amen? He put us in the race through his shed blood. We couldn't even be in the race if he didn't put us there. Amen? So he is the author of our faith, but he's also the finisher of our faith. The Bible says he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So guys, when you're running in the race, praise God that he's running alongside you. Amen? And when you're weary, He picks you up and carries you along the way. That's the God that we serve. He doesn't leave us alone. We're not striving in good works. He helps us and leads us. And then it says this. what, What price did he pay to be the author and finisher of our faith? It says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're going to finish with verse 2. I want you to see a couple of things as we close. Look what it says. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, he's speaking to the first century Jewish Christians who are struggling because they're being persecuted and then he points out that Jesus endured the cross. Guys, none of us have faced anything like the cross. Amen? And he endured the cross. He's our example And because he endured the cross, he can be the author and finisher of our faith. How much did he endure for us? The cross of Calvary. They were struggling to endure. They were wanting to drop out due to persecution and difficulty. Next time you want to walk away from God, remember what he did for you. Next time you want to run to someone else or something else, look to the cross of Calvary and remember the price that was paid for you. As you've heard me say many times, you determine the value of something by what someone was willing to pay for it. How valuable are you to God? He sent His only Son to suffer and die that you might have eternal life. That's how much He loves you and that's how valuable you are to God. Next time you want to walk away from Him, remember what He has done for you. He paid the ultimate price to redeem us from our sin. But I want us to really focus on these next few words. And then it says this. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Have you ever thought about this? He despised the shame. You know, our Savior is the glorious Creator, Almighty God, who was in heaven being worshipped by the angels in heaven, around the throne, praising, worshiping, and honoring His name. He was in His glorified body. He was perfect, holy God. And He left that perfection. And He came to earth. And He took upon Himself not only our torment and the suffering and pain that we should have endured because of our sin, but He took the shame. Now let me say something about that. Almighty God left heaven before it was over, he was hanging on a cross. His flesh was torn. He had little or no clothing. His body was battered. His face was marred beyond recognition. He was covered in blood and spit and dirt. The king of glory was held to an open shame. 
How valuable are you to God? That shame belongs to us. That was our shame, amen? We deserve that. And he did that for us. He did not look forward to being shamed. He did not look forward to being hung upon a cross and being mocked and spit upon. He did not look forward to being separated from the Father as all the sin of mankind was placed upon Him. And yet He endured it out of love for us. Guys, He endured the shame for us. May we stand with boldness for Him. Amen? So often, we're afraid to stand because we're afraid we're going to be ashamed. Someone's going to shame us somehow. The King of Glory was held to an open shame. These first century Jews felt they were dealing with a great deal. Nothing compared, again, to all that Christ had done for them. We need to look to Him. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And that the rest of that verse says, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Guys, we look to Him. He endured the suffering. He endured the shame. And he did it all for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? The joy of eternity with you. The joy of restoring sinful man back to holy God. He endured shame knowing that at the end of shame would bring about a restoration of sinful man back to holy God. He had an eternal perspective. And guys, you and I too need to have an eternal perspective. The only way we'll be able to stand with boldness is if we have an eternal perspective. The only way we'll be able to stand faithful in the midst of persecution is to realize that this life is but a vapor, but eternity is a long time. Amen? A long time. Guys, we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive. Amen? The time we have here is nothing compared to eternity. That eternal glory is something so much greater. And guys, when we understand that and we grasp that, this is but light affliction in light of that which is coming. And our Savior, because He's Almighty God, He had an eternal perspective, and He endured shame that He was not looking forward to out of love for us. And Lord, if, Lord, if we're going to serve You, if we're going to love You, if we're going to honor You, how can we do that and then not be willing to suffer any persecution? Not be willing to have anyone ever look at us sideways. We just want to fit in with the world. Jesus Christ did not fit in with the world. He had the joy that was set before him, the joy of eternity, of restoring you and I back into him. His focus was not on temporary suffering, but the greater glory. Guys, I may exhort myself. You know, maybe this message is only for me. But you know what? The exhortation is to myself. Lord, help me to keep my eyes on eternity and not to be worried about the temporal difficulties of this life. You're my, you're my Father, you're my Savior, you're my God, you're my King. Heaven is not just a destination, it needs to be a motivation. Amen? Amen? We need to be motivated by eternity. We are going to spend eternity somewhere, everyone in this room. God doesn't make any temporal beings. Absent from the body, present with the Lord if you know God. Absent from the body, separated from the Lord for all eternity if you don't. Guys, this is not, you know, this is not a test run. We don't, get, we don't get any do-overs with life. We got one life to live for Him. And the, the proof that Almighty God believes in us sharing our faith is He had one son and He made Him a soul winner. Amen? And we too are His children. And God has such a calling upon our lives. And it's for such a time as this that we've been placed upon this earth. It's right now. It's this time. And God wants to use us. And, and you know, my prayer for all of us as a church, that we will stand before Almighty God one day and we'll hear those seven words, well done, now good and faithful servant. Amen? And Lord, help us to come to the place as we celebrate your birth, that we set aside all those things that... that in, entangle us, all those things that weighed us down, all those sins that ensnare us, all those concerns, all those worries about the temporal things of life. Lord, give us an eternal focus. Paint eternity on our eyes. Give us a burden for the lost. Help us to see Santa Cruz the way you see it. Help us to see those who are downtown the way that you see them. May our hearts break for them. Our co-workers, may our hearts break for them. May we be burdened for them. I know I'm preaching now, but you know what? Here's the point, guys. We don't get another chance. This is it. Don't you want to live this life serving Him? He's the author and finisher of our faith. He wants us to run the race. He wants to come alongside us and help us finish strong. Lord, help us finish strong. Amen? Help us to serve you completely and totally. As you go out Christmas shopping, 
Remember that he's the reason for the season. Don't get so caught up buying the perfect gift for somebody. The greatest gift you can give somebody is to pray for them. And if they don't know God, the greatest gift you can give is pray for them and share Jesus with them. Amen? That's going to impact eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this exhortation. Lord, I know if it's for no one else in the room, it's for me. Lord, to live a life focused on eternity. To never take for granted that open shame that you endured out of love for us. You despised the shame and you did it anyway because you love us. Lord, you're such a gracious, awesome, merciful, loving God. Lord, help us not to be ashamed of you. You endured the shame that we might stand with boldness before the throne of grace. You endured the shame that we might be filled with your Holy Spirit. You endured the shame that we might walk in intimate fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that we would not only be willing to die for you, but Lord, we'd be willing to live for you every single day. Lord, we want our lives to count, to impact eternity. Lord, we can't do this without you. We need your help. Fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Do a work here in Santa Cruz, Lord. We want to see revival. We want to see Santa Cruz, Holy Cross, live up to its name. Father, we know you can do that. You're a great and awesome God. We give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.